this morning. Uh, we're not going to be in 1 Corinthians um, a lot because uh, it's going to be more of a Bible study this morning, more of a tracing a theme through the scriptures. Um, so before we go to the scriptures, let's take a moment to pray to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for your grace toward us in providing this book that we hold in our hands. Lord, we thank you that we, when we come to your word, we don't need to worry and wonder about whether or not what we have in our hands is true. Lord, you have seen fit to provide us your inerrant, your infallible, your all-sufficient word. Lord, there's nothing more that we need in order to be equipped uh, to live a life of faith and godliness. Lord, we thank you for providing for our every need in this book, and we pray that um, your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word as we look at it together, that he would be our instructor this morning, that um, he would intervene uh, if I would say anything that is not accurate, Lord, or not a faithful handling of your word. May you give each one of us discernment, Lord. Um, but I pray for his enablement that I would rightly handle his word and rightly explain um, what is said so that you may be glorified and your people may be encouraged, Lord, and edified and built up. And so I pray you'd help us this morning, Lord. Without you, um, nothing is going to make any sense, Lord. But I pray that you would come and you would minister your truth to each heart here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, um, we finished 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. And I'll, I'll read the passage that we looked at last week. Paul, in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." So we saw there how Paul exhorted these believers to run the race of faith in such a way as to win the race, exercising self-control in all things for the sake of winning an incorruptible crown. And to discover what this crown is that we are running to win, we went to various passages which spoke in similar contexts of this crown, this Stephanos, this victor's crown that is awarded to the one who wins the race. And in those passages, this crown was variously described as a crown of righteousness or a crown of life or a crown of glory. And these descriptions indicated that the crown being spoken of was not a reward in addition to salvation, but was, in fact, salvation itself. Righteousness, life, glory. Not only that, but the ones who were receiving these crowns indicated that this was salvation itself being received, not simply a, an additional reward. For example, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, Paul said that this crown is promised to all who have loved Christ's appearing. Not just some, all of them. James chapter 1 and verse 12 said that this crown is promised to those who love Jesus. That's a description of the believer, the one who loves Jesus. In 1 Peter 5 verse 4, this crown is promised to faithful elders. And there is no other kind of elder. An elder who's not faithful is not fit to be an elder. It's, it's an elder who holds fast to the faith. It's promised in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, this crown is promised to those who keep believing unto death, the persevering believer. Revelation 3, verse 11, this crown is promised to those who have kept Christ's word. 
So this crown is not a crown that's promised to super-Christians. It is promised to persevering-in-faith Christians. And this same interpretation is supported in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul speaks of this crown. It's supported by the fact that Paul follows up his discussion here of winning this crown with an illustration in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And the illustration he gives is of the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and how they fell short of entering the promised land because they did not remain faithful to God. And this illustration is meant to be an illustration of failing to persevere in faith. And failing to persevere in faith for the Israelites resulted not merely in the loss of reward, but it resulted in the experience of the wrath of God. Most of them fell dead in the wilderness, destroyed by the destroyer. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, through what we'll look at in weeks ahead, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, in these verses, Paul is letting these believers know that if they do not persevere in the faith, then they will not make it to heaven. They will not experience eternal life. They will not walk into glory. And there's other passages like this that we find in Scripture. And when we come to passages like this, it can result in confusion for us. Because we know of promises in Scripture that teach the eternal security of the believer. And it's hard to know what to make of these warnings. How do they fit together? Because we know God's Word doesn't contradict itself. So how do these things fit together? And in our attempts to fit them together, sometimes we either tend to blunt the warnings to make them say something other than what they actually say, or we blunt the promises to make them promise less than what they actually promise. And I want to show you this morning that we don't need to do that. We don't need to try to shoehorn these things into one another. We can let the warnings say what they clearly say. And we can let the promises say what they clearly say without fear of them contradicting one another, because they don't. They complement one another. And this morning we'll see how that is the case. And we're just going to kind of walk through this step by step. And I provided outlines with verses kind of written out, because I'm going to move kind of fast, probably too fast for you to flip through your Bibles and keep up with me. So you're welcome to grab one of these outlines if you didn't get it yet. Feel free to stand up and grab one if you didn't receive one yet. But the first point that we're going to look at this morning in understanding how these things fit together is this. Perseverance in faith is required for salvation. Perseverance in faith is required for salvation. And this is not a claim of adding works to salvation. This is simply saying you have to keep believing. Just as you have to believe to become saved, you have to keep believing to experience final salvation. This is not adding works to the gospel. We have to know what the Bible says about this. That is the question to answer. What does the Bible say? And the Bible says clear as day that you must persevere in faith in order to be saved at the end. Now, where does the Bible say this? It might be quicker to ask, where does the Bible not say this? Anybody need an outline? Eric's got an extra one there. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 10. And this is just a handful of passages. There's many more passages that I, that I could add to these. Matthew 10, verse 22. Jesus says, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 61, says, And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus says, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And again, I'm just letting these passages speak for themselves. I'm not spending a lot of time explaining them. I'm just reading them, just letting them wash over you. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21, that says that after they, Paul and Barnabas, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to what? Continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, Paul wrote, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So to believe at one point in time and then to stop believing means that you believed in vain and you will not be saved by this gospel if you stop believing. Paul again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, he said, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the preacher there writes, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And of course, there's all of Hebrews chapter 11, which testifies to the persevering faith of the saints throughout the ages. And they stand as witnesses to us about what true faith in Christ looks like. It's faith that perseveres through all the trial, all the heartache, all the deprivation, that faith continues to the end. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, says that Believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is faith that weathers the being tested by fire. It survives fiery testing, proving that that faith is genuine. Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Where there is no faith, there is no salvation of your souls. Finally, and I didn't write these down because I want you to turn there, the book of Revelation. I want you to see the letters of Christ to these seven churches. And in every single one of these letters, Jesus ends the letter with a call to perseverance. There's a phrase that he uses again and again. He says, to the one who overcomes, I will give such and such. To the one who overcomes. What is this overcoming? 
Well, Revelation was written by who? The Apostle John. Listen to what the Apostle John says. You don't have to turn there. Keep your finger in Revelation. But listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. He says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So overcoming is believing. It is continuing to believe. So with that, let's look at what Jesus says to these churches. Look at chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 7, the end of his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And look at verse 10 to the church in Smyrna. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire. If you keep believing to the end, you will not be cast into the lake of fire. Verse 17, to the church in Pergamum, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Verse 25, to the church in Thyatira. He says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 5, to the church in Sardis. He says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will never erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 12, to Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Verse 21 to the church in Laodicea. He says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Did Jesus persevere in faith to the end? Yes, he did. And he says, you will sit with me on my throne if you also persevere in faith to the end. So all of these scriptures that we've seen, would you say that the scriptures are pretty clear on this? That you must persevere in faith in order to experience eternal life. This is not an obscure doctrine that we just have to try to read into the Bible. This is everywhere. Now, each of these passages that I read, there's an implied warning that if I must continue in faith until the end to be saved, that implies what? That if I don't, then I won't experience eternal life. It's implied. But are there any explicit statements? Are there any explicit statements from Scripture about what would happen if we were to fail to persevere in faith to the end? Yes, there are several. And this brings us to our second point, warnings against failing to persevere in faith. And again, I've got a couple passages I'll just read to you. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 32 to 33, Jesus says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him 
before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 6, records Jesus saying, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And of course, there's the famous warnings in the book of Hebrews. Go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. And we've looked at these warnings extensively when we were going through the book of Hebrews together. And I'll just read a few of the warnings of this book. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Speaking of the gospel. Lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels, speaking of the old covenant, if if that proved unalterable and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Next, go to chapter 6, starting in verse 4. <clears throat> There the preacher writes, For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And then chapter 10, verse 26 There he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And lastly, I want to read to you from the book of Revelation again, chapter 14, verses 9 through 12. This is being spoken in the context of the Great Tribulation, where people are forced to choose between Christ and Antichrist. There's no middle ground. You either take the mark of Antichrist or you die for your faith in Christ. That's the choice that will be given. And listen to the warning that is given to all. In verse 9 of Revelation 14, it says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
So these passages outline for us what would happen should we turn away from our faith in Christ. Now, after reading passages like this, it may seem as though our salvation hangs in the balance, that we cannot really know whether or not we're going to make it to the end. But is that true? Or are there rock-solid promises that assure us of the certainty of our victorious perseverance in the faith? After reading those passages, we think, well, how could there be? But actually, there are. There are several of those promises for us. And we're going to look at those next. That's what we've all been waiting for. Getting, let me hear the promises now. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 6. And these are promises of certain perseverance in the faith. John's Gospel, chapter 6. We read it for our call to worship, starting in verse 35. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he intending... Where am I? That's the wrong chapter. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then look at verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, according to this passage, who is the initiator of our salvation? Jesus speaks of God the Father as the initiator. Verse 44, he draws us to his Son. And verse 37 says that the Father gives us to his Son. That is a description of the Father granting us faith because unless he draws us, unless he gives us to his Son, unless he grants us faith, we will not believe because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, in verse 65, he reiterates this by saying, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now back to verse 37, Jesus says that all that the Father gives me shall come to me. So is there anyone whom the Father gives his Son who does not actually come to his Son? No, they all come. Every single one the Father gives to his Son comes by faith to his Son. Now look at verse 39. And this is the will of of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So the ones whom the Father has given the Son, they are the ones who have come to the Son by faith, and out of all of those who have come to the Son by faith, how many does the Son lose? How many does the Son fail to raise up on the last day? Nothing. None of them. He loses not a single one of them. That's, that sounds pretty secure, doesn't it? Now turn to Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 28. I'm going to read verses 28 to 39. There Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He, in, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Not just we barely make it. No, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look at verse 30. According to verse 30, who gets to heaven? Who gets glorified? The same ones who have been justified. Now who gets justified? Backing up a little bit. Well, it's the same ones who were called by God. And this is not the general call, the general gospel call. This is the specific, effectual call of God. It's him giving the believer to his son. It's him drawing the believer to his son. It's the kind of call that Jesus called out to Lazarus with that raised him from the dead and brought him out of the tomb. It's that kind of call. Those ones are justified. Now, who gets called? Who are the ones who get called by God unto salvation? Well, it says the same ones who are predestined to that salvation. And who gets predestined to salvation? It's the same ones, verse 29, whom God foreknew. That is, the ones whom God had chosen beforehand, before they existed, before they ever believed, before they ever did anything good or bad. It's the ones whom God chose beforehand to enter into a covenant relationship with. Not on the basis of anything they did or would do, simply on the gracious choice of God. This is an unbreakable chain. There are, there are no dropouts here, no drop-offs. The same ones whom God foreknew are the same ones whom God will glorify. There's no dropping off in the middle of this chain. So if you are sitting here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you are justified by God, you have been justified not owing to any wisdom you had over and above anybody else. You owe your justification to the foreknowing and the predestining and the calling of God, calling you to that salvation. And if you are sitting here justified today, you will be glorified. There's no question about that. It's as good as done. Paul is saying these things in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's as good as done. And according to verse 29, what is it that we have been predestined to? What does it say? Predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. When does that process finish? When we are glorified. That's when the conforming has completed. Now, let me ask you, is there anything that will get in the way of us reaching that destiny? No. Why? Because God is the one, the God who is sovereign over all things. He has already predetermined, predestined that that will happen. And how exactly does he go about making sure that everyone he has predestined will, in fact, end up being fully conformed to his Son and glorified? How does he do that? Verse 28, he causes all things, good things and bad things, he causes all things to work together to that end. 
So, will God allow anything into your life that will short-circuit that, that will stop that from happening? No, he will not. Clearly, he will not. And that leads Paul to say what he says in verse 31. After having considered this, he says, What then shall we say to these things that I've just finished talking about? We say this, if God is for us, who is against us? Nobody. Nobody can stop God's plan from happening. If God is the one who is ordering every single circumstance in our life for the express purpose of bringing us to that destiny to which he has called us, is there anything now or in the future that could possibly knock us out of the race of faith or prevent us from winning our crown? No, nothing. In fact, what are the things that would make us stop believing? Tribulation, persecution, height, depth, demons, all the things he lists throughout the rest of the chapter. Those are the things that would threaten our faith and knock us out of the race, get us to stop believing. But Paul here says that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. You see, you cannot lose this race. God has fixed the race in your favor. He has constructed the course in such a way that victory is assured, that you will finish if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And there are times when it may seem like everything is working against your faith, but it's actually the opposite. Everything is working for your faith because God is accomplishing that. That's why James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Falling away? No. Produces endurance, perseverance. And he says, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Which is what Paul said. The, the result is being conformed to Christ. And there are other passages to go to, but I'll settle for giving you just a couple more in 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, look at verse 9. And John is writing here in the context of speaking of those who are habitually living a life of following Christ in righteousness, righteous behavior, not perfection, but that's the trend of their life, as opposed to those who are living in habitual sin, pursuing a life of sin, pursuing a life of choosing self over Christ. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. He says, everyone who has been born of God, that's the true believer, everyone who has been born of God does not sin, past tense, that is, does not make a practice of pursuing sin in his life. Everyone who's been born of God does not sin. Why not? Because his seed, God's seed, abides in him. We've been born again of what? The living and enduring word of God. And he cannot sin. Cannot. It's, it's a, a negative of the word dunatai, which means able to, or dunamai. So he's literally saying he is not able to sin, to go back to that lifestyle of habitual sin. Why not? Because he has been born of God. If you are a, truly a Christian and you have truly repented of your sin and you've truly placed your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you simply will not fail to persevere in the faith because you have been born of God. Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. It says the same thing. 1 John 5, verse 4 says, For everything that has been born of God does what? Overcomes the world. How many? How many who are born of God overcome the world? Everything. All of them. Every single one who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the overcoming 
that has overcome the world, our faith. You will not fail to persevere in faith because of who birthed you into existence. Before Christ, you were by nature sons and daughters of disobedience. You could not not sin. Sinning was your nature. Unbelieving was who you are. You couldn't not be unbelieving. That was who you are. Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I can't change the color of my skin. The leopard cannot change the configuration of his spots. He is what he is. And nothing can change that. And the point of this passage in Jeremiah is, you who are accustomed to doing evil, you can't change yourself. That's what you are. And that's who we were. You cannot change what you are by nature, which is why God had to take the initiative in our salvation to draw us to his Son, to cause us to be born again, to make us new creatures, to take out our unbelieving heart of stone and to sovereignly give us a believing heart of flesh. But guess what? As new creatures in Christ, that same principle applies. You cannot change who you are. And what we are by nature now in Christ is we are believers. Believing is what we do. Believing is who we are. You could sooner cause the sun to stop shining than to cause yourself to stop believing. That's who you are. God made you a new creature, and that new creature behaves in this way. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, which is the source of, of the most shocking warnings in Scripture, in chapter 10, right after he gives that warning about falling away from Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the preacher in the book of Hebrews, he didn't consider his warnings to be contradictory to the very nature that we have as believers, which is to persevere in faith. He saw no contradiction. He said one right after the other. Now, how does this fit together? And that brings us to our fourth and final point, warning and promise. They are complementary. They're not contradictory. But how? How does that work? If our perseverance in faith is assured and certain, then why are there so many commands in Scripture exhorting us to persevere? And why are the warnings against failing to persevere so scary, so severe? Again, the temptation we have is to either blunt the promises so that they don't actually promise what they appear to promise, or to blunt the warnings so that they don't actually warn against what they appear to warn against. But if we really believe that this is the word of God, then we should not be afraid to let the promises say what they say and let the warnings say what they say. But again, how do these things fit together? Well, the thing we need to understand about the warnings is their purpose. Why are warnings given? Warnings are given for the purpose of stopping something from happening, aren't they? That is their function. If I tell my son that if he touches the hot stove, he will get burned, why am I telling that to him? Am I saying that to him in order to somehow indirectly comment on whether or not people have done that in the past? That's not why I'm saying that to him. Am I saying that to him in order to depress him with the thought that the day might come when he will actually touch that stove and get burned? No, that's not why I'm saying don't touch that stove. If you touch it, you'll get burned. I'm saying that to stop him from doing that. That's the purpose of my warning. And that is the purpose of these warnings in Scripture. They don't give us information on whether or not such a thing has ever happened before because that is not their purpose. They are given for the purpose of 
preventing us from falling away from the faith. The warnings are aids to perseverance. They are not contradictions to the promises given in Scripture. Rather, the warnings serve and support the promises. They ensure that the promises will certainly come about. That is the purpose of these warnings. And in fact, God is quite explicit about this. The last book I'll have you go to is Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40. The context of this passage is the new covenant. The new covenant that God has made with his people. A new covenant that we as believers in Christ today are beneficiaries of if we are believing in Jesus Christ. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 32 verse 40. He says, and I will cut an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now this fear that he's putting in our hearts, it's not a servile terror, but it's a trembling, joyous, loving, worshipful awed fear of God. That's what he puts in our heart. It's a fear that takes his warnings and his promises very seriously. And the fact that God puts that in our hearts, that is what makes the new covenant such good news. This covenant that Jesus instituted by his sacrifice. Because under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, the people promised God that they would do everything he said. Remember three times before the foot of Mount Sinai, they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do it. But they failed. They turned their backs on God and they worshiped idols. Why did they do that? Because they received warnings just like we have received warnings. All you have to do is read Deuteronomy 27 and 28 to see All those warnings that God gave, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. But those warnings didn't stop the people from turning away from God. Why not? Why did the warnings not accomplish that in their lives as opposed to certainly accomplishing it in our lives? Look back at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, just to give some context here. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and call out in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the loving kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your walking after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord the first of his produce. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after vanity and became vain? So we see right there they failed to persevere. They didn't stick with the Lord. Now why not? Look at verse 19. Look at what he says to them. Your own evil will chastise you, and your acts of faithlessness will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not what? In you. The dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. That is why the warning didn't have that same effect in them because the fear of God was not in their hearts. So, But how do we know today? How do we know that we will not end up the same way? It's because under the new covenant our God has put the fear of himself into our hearts. 
And so when we hear these warnings, we don't ignore them. Actually, they, they strengthen our faith. We, we hear it, and because the fear of God has been hidden in our hearts, we say, boy, I'm going to stick close to Jesus. I'm not going to stop believing in him. I'm not going to turn away from him. That is the effect that the warnings have on the true believer. They strengthen our faith. They ensure that the promises will come about. So do you see how that works? The warnings of Scripture do not contradict or weaken the promises of Scripture. Actually, they do the opposite. They strengthen the promises of Scripture. The warnings are one means by which those promises will certainly be fulfilled in us. If you belong to Christ, he has, John 10, a firm grip on you. And as he exhorts you to hang on to his hand by faith, we can rest in the confident truth that his grip on us is what causes our grip on him to remain steadfast. But this morning, if you have turned away from following Christ, if you have, in fact, followed in the footsteps of the Israelites and you have turned away, you need to understand that you never possessed Christ in the first place. 1 John 2.19 says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. And 1 John 3.6 says that no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or has come to know him. So if that is you, don't look back to some moment in your past when you walked an aisle or you raised your hand or you prayed a prayer and you think that now, it doesn't matter how you're living now, you're set. Don't fall for that because if you're not following Christ now, you did not start following him then. And what you need to do is hear the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people and he rose from the dead to bring new life to his people and you need to repent now. And you need to believe in him now. What matters is, are you following him now? Not so much did you start following him back then. Cry to him for mercy now and he will save you and he will never let you go and you will never let go of him. Let's pray.